Welcome to the Blockchain VC, a podcast about crypto and the digital assets ecosystem. My name is Tomer Federman, and I'm the managing partner at Federman Capital. We invest in the most promising blockchain startups across the globe. I have more than 15 years of experience in tech, and before starting the fund, I was on the product side at Facebook, where I led product strategy and global growth of some of Facebook's major ad products. Previously, I also lived in Silicon Valley for a few years, where I attended Stanford Business School. You can find me on Twitter at Tomer Federman. Before we begin, please note that this podcast is for informational purposes only. And all the opinions expressed on this show, either by guests or me, do not reflect the opinions of Federman Capital. Nothing on the Blockchain VC podcast represents an investment or financial advice. Please, do your own research. Also, if you like this episode of the Blockchain VC and want to help bring more awareness to the space, I'd really appreciate it if you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. This only takes a few seconds and helps get the word out. Okay, let's do this. Really excited to welcome to the show today, Jack O'Halloran, CEO of Scale. Jack, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here tonight. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So Jack, I'd like to start by talking about your background and how you got into the crypto space before you started Scale. Yeah, so uh, so I, I've been doing tech startups in Silicon Valley for about 15 years. Um, my first one was called Good Technology. It was a cryptographic secure messaging platform. So uh, it was a nice introduction into security and messaging and networking. And uh, that company ended up doing pretty well, was acquired by Motorola for about a half a billion dollars. I started on the, the ground floor there uh, as a you know, college graduate and then kind of worked my way up to an executive position. And, and then the, uh, the founder and the CEO took me under their wing and, and you know, recognized that I could go and, and, and give it a shot starting my own company. So, uh, so after that, started a company called Incentiline that was a digital currency platform. So you could essentially tokenize resources in an enterprise. So uh, if you had a scarce resource, you could apply a currency around it and people could pay for it with this internal currency. So NASA, for example, you have these NASA bucks and by wind tunnel time or supercompute time or uh, you know resources to get foreign nationals on base. And if you need someone tomorrow, you pay more. If you need someone and you don't want to spend as much, you could wait till uh, an off-peak period. And so it created a natural smoothing of resource allocation. And Anyways, it was one of those great ideas that uh, that's great in, that is really great in an up market. But in 2008, when the market crashed, it uh, uh, it wasn't a great idea. And <laughs> but you know, <laughs> um, you know, a little too forward thinking and and uh, and uh, and innovative for the that point in the cycle. So we ended, right. we ended up uh, yeah, we ended up not giving up though, and started a company called Octana, uh, A K T A N A and. And almost every pharmaceutical rep and biotech rep in the world, from small molecule, small molecule uh, pharma to uh, oncology, is guided through this AI machine learning platform to help deliver better medical information to doctors. So, so um, yeah, learned a lot through that process, and you know, raised you know, raised over 100 million dollars, built a, a hugely successful global leading company, and made a ton of mistakes along the way, which. I think, you know, thankfully I've become a better entrepreneur because of it and and then uh, really got into crypto and and Bitcoin really in 2013 but started with the uh, you know the white paper was circulating all around 
uh, around the Bay back in 2011. And, and so that, that stimulus, uh, you know, started my journey. And, and then when I was starting a company in 2017, it was a no brainer to do it in, in crypto, especially after I learned about Ethereum. So what is it about crypto and sounds like Ethereum in particular that attracted you to the space? So for me, it was, so one, I think this initially the premise of consensus and proof of work was really cool uh, in terms of being able to understand how a currency could be created, but it wasn't enough to get me to want to start a business in the space. It was enough to make me be an incredible enthusiast and a lover of Bitcoin and a supporter of Bitcoin, which I still am. But then when I learned about Ethereum and understood how smart contracts and logic and processing could interact with consensus and trustlessness, then I recognized that you could create different systems and structures and organizational units and groups. And, and um, the cool thing about it is, is you can create better structures and systems where you almost create a co-op type environment where the group wins more than a select few. And, and the cool thing about this is you could do this typically without the consensus model, without uh, blockchain. But what you're lacking in those environments is you're lacking uh, a trustless system that still doesn't need a, a trusted intermediary. And you're lacking a bootstrapping mechanism where you can get a group, build a community. And so, so the cool thing about uh, cryptocurrencies and decentralized networks and decentralized systems is they give one, a financial win to the people who are early in supporting the network by you know, purchasing the asset to people it gives a win to people who are going to devote their lives and take risks to get things started um but it doesn't create a long-term monopoly situation like you have with current centralized uh web2 companies so you actually can create this positive societal lift and um, in conjunction with uh, a good monetary win and it, and to me that was incredibly stimulating and and amazing to hear how uh, we are able to create new business models. And so that's what got me. That was the hook. Yeah, it's amazing, right? The first time I realized the implications of smart contracts, I just it's mind-blowing, right? There's so many different use cases you can immediately imagine. You know, at first, I remember when I learned about it, I was like, this can be true, right? Like, surely yeah. something doesn't work here, because if it does this thing is going to change the world. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and Tomer, I, I, think, I think there's a, right now there's this group of people that kind of, that I think really see the playing field and understand how this stuff can come together and how it will come together. And I think recognize it's just a matter of time. Then there's, you know, another group of people who are, who just, I think, don't see the entire connection between the technology and the impact on human behavior and human structures. And so uh, I think, you know, people like yourself, you're at Facebook and people like me uh, and many, the, and I think I'm sure all, most of the listeners here uh, see that connection. And the cool thing about these growth areas is it's almost like there's a secret that not everyone still gets and knows and it, it makes it all <laughs> right. fun to work. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I remember when I left Facebook, many of my friends and colleagues thought I'm crazy, right? Like I was mm -hmm. like, listen, guys, 
blockchain is going to change the world. And, you know, well, guess what, right? Like a few months later, Facebook came with this Libra initiative and the same folks who thought I'm crazy were calling me about, <laughs> hey, like, please tell us more. We need to understand what's happening here. So it, it's a process. It takes time, but I think the technology, kind of like the internet, right? It's mm-hmm. It might take a bit longer or, you know, it might move faster than what we think. But in my mind, it's not a question of if, it's more a question of when. Yeah. To your point about the excitement around smart contracts. The other piece to that is that, you know, I think is one of the biggest problems in this space is if we did, if, you know, it's all, it's a benefit and a, and a, and a negative. So if, if we didn't have this incredible growth surge in token prices, people would just be looking at all the growth in terms of progress and be incredibly it just it bullish and optimistic if you only are looking at the growth curve from the tech and the adoption perspective. Right. And because this stuff just takes a long time. But then when you see these surging prices, you expect the growth to be faster. So I think there's a short-term belief that we should have more progress. But I think what people typically do, they overestimate what you can do in the short term and they underestimate what you can do in the long term. And I think we're just seeing that come into play here, like textbook manner. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's always funny to me when I talk to folks who maybe are not so much in the weeds. Then they're like, well, you know, nobody still uses blockchain and... This technology is in its infancy, which is true. It is in its infancy. But on the other hand, if you look even just at DeFi, right, it's like a $1 billion market that literally didn't exist slightly over two (laughs) years ago. So it is moving and it's actually moving quite rapidly, but it's not like something that's going to happen tomorrow. It's a process, just like Bitcoin is a process, right? Yeah. You know, Bitcoin like three, four years ago was trading at like two, three hundred dollars. People forget that because they focus so much on, oh, it was already at 19K. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's really important to kind of focus on the big picture and take a long-term view and preferably be less time-sensitive. Well, and, and one more co- before we move on, one more comment on that. So you look at DeFi and people well, – so one question people have is, well, what are the use cases? Why would people use blockchain? There are hundreds and thousands of use cases one of those use cases is, and we like to call it DeFi, it sounds cool and bigger and broader, um, and it is big and broad, but the reality is, is there's these centralized entities that, that take our money and store it for us and give us a return on it. And what they also do is they give loans to people for really high amounts. And by being that middle middleman in the equation, they're able to extract huge value. And what we've done with, in this case is, We've removed the banks, and we use a technology system that that uh, creates wins for those that are supporting, and it creates punishment vehicles for those that steal, and it creates upside for those that you know collateralize the system with their storing their money there. And we've basically just disintermediated the savings account in a huge way. Yeah, and so which there's is a great crazy, example. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's huge. And what's going to happen? And it is going to happen. When you won't have to download MetaMask or something pretty painful like that, and suddenly you're able to start saving, right? Because right now it's still a bit complicated. There's some friction there. The user experience isn't isn't ideal, right? Yeah. 
we've seen that over and over again, right? It's like the tech is already here. The user experience is pretty bad at this point. We had that also with the internet. You remember when we had these modems and it was really slow and people were like, what are you talking about? Someday people will stream video over there like you're crazy. And I feel like the same thing is going to happen here. Right now, it's still clunky. But guess what? Like, I already see that, you know, talking to startups every day. Like, it gets better and better. And in a few years' time, like you're saying, you won't have that intermediary, but also the user experience is going to be much better. Users are going to migrate to that just because it's better. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're, and, you know, so there's a company actually in Israel called Portis. And there's a whole category of these web, uh, these API-based wallets that make it incredibly easy to authenticate in. And, you know, just as if you're using Web2 and plug in and use your money in all these different systems. And, and really what you're getting is you're getting fiat on-ramp where you, and some of them you can even use a credit card <coughs> or connect a bank account and get your asset into crypto. And then you just can use the systems and, and scale connects to those uh, web Web3 API-based wallets and the end user doesn't even need to know they're connecting to a layer two system to uh, to get you know lower gas fees and 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 greater uh, efficiencies and 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 uh, and and speed etc. So so yeah, there's huge growth happening and all these things are happening behind the scenes and a lot of people aren't aware. And to our friends who say, oh, but no one uses blockchain, well, everyone will use it as soon as they don't need to realize they're using it. That's really where the UX win happens when you just feel like you're using the internet and we're getting there. Absolutely. So Jack, what is scale? Yeah. So scale is a, a network that is built to support Ethereum dApps. Now what it is, is it's a, uh, it's, it's a high throughput elastic blockchain network. And you could think of it almost as um, there, there's two premises when people think about blockchains in, in the proof of stake world. And one of them is just having a big shared public chain that everyone uses. And it's almost like a shared database for, for the entire group. <coughs> and if you think about it, let's say Facebook and Gmail had to use the same backend database. And all of a sudden, you know, something's going viral and it costs me more money to send my email. Well, that's not the way the world works in Web2, but that's the way it's worked with these big shared public blockchains. The other view is having application-specific blockchains. That's so what scale is. Scale is a method to give every single application its own blockchain. And it's really your own fast version of Ethereum that can connect back to the big public version of Ethereum. So all of the user activity and all the smart contracts and all the execution of, of, of action happens in your own backend. And that's in your scale uh, blockchain. And then whenever the users have to like have to settle or leave the network, it goes and it, it speaks to Ethereum and it settles things. So, and what it does is it doesn't create this dependency or vulnerability across applications. And so, scale uses microservices. So you think about Docker and and um, it's almost as if Kubernetes is a method to orchestrate and 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 leverage Docker containers. And scale, in a way, is a decentralized network that almost acts as a Kubernetes that it lives across Ethereum and the scale network. And what it does is, let's say I have a gaming dApp. Um, I can come to the network and these resources get deployed to me. And these resources are very flexible. So uh, a thousand nodes, for example, could run 8,000 independent blockchains or far fewer, depending on how big 
each blockchain is <coughs> it's an elastic network so so it is a network of blockchains that gives every single application their own backend that connects seamlessly to ethereum got it so is it fair to think about scale as a layer to sidechain for ethereum yeah i i like to call it layer two plus so a lot of people talk about layer two being a pure method to only rely on consensus of the main net what scale does scale relies on consensus of the scale validators and side chains are typically very insecure because you have less validators there's less nodes that are running consensus and for those uh you know or you know if you think about it just each node is a computer and each one needs to have the same record in the same state and if one's off then we know that that one's not accurate right and if two-thirds of these are malicious or try to steal from a blockchain in a byzantine fault tolerant system like scale they could steal the money and so traditional side chains are not very secure because let's say you only have 16 validators well getting two-thirds of 16 to be bad is a lot easier than getting two-thirds of 10,000 to be bad. Scale gets around that <coughs> by, by a method of being able to uh, random, to have a big pool of validators, be able to, in a secure way, cryptographically secure way, pull a subset of those validator or nodes into a chain and then rotate them. And there's also incentives. So I call this random, uh, randomness rotation and incentives. And then the incentive piece is that each node has to stake amount of, a certain amount of money into the network. And on scale, it might be like $150,000 to $200,000 equivalent. And then if you're bad in steel, then you get penalized by losing that money. And so what you do is you create a model where each individual chain gets to borrow pooled security from the entire group because the way that the incentives work, the way that random selection of nodes work, and the way that rotation works, you create a model where... You have this, and we call them elastic blockchains that can be sized up or down according to needs, but also they're elastic in the way that uh, node assignments work. So, so they're very secure side chains that can be used as a side chain. It could be used even as an independent blockchain um, at the end of the day and not even connect to Ethereum. But the main use case is an elastic side chain. Got it. And again, just to clarify for listeners who might not be familiar with this term, what do you define exactly as an elastic sidechain? Yeah, so an elastic sidechain, one, it's a blockchain that can work, that is application specific, that can work next to a, a shared public blockchain like Ethereum. And the so that's that's a sidechain piece. So you think about it, I have a DeFi dApp. On one, I'm built onto Ethereum mainnet, and then on the side, I have a scale chain. Um, and then the elastic component is I might just be a startup and not have many users, so I can pay very little money. I can pay 100 bucks a month or 50 bucks a month equivalent. You'd be paying in scale tokens, not dollars, but just to throw out a, a, a dollar value. But And what I, do, what I can get then is I can get just a small amount of scale. I can get a small amount of the network of compute. Or I might then all of a sudden we might get successful and then I want to, you know, get 5x more. Then I can grow and I can dynamically have uh, moved to a different chain where I have more resources. And so what happens is it's elastic in the sense that, um, that I'm able to size up or down my quantities. And it's also elastic in the sense that the nodes that work for me are constantly being shifted and rotated so that my chain can borrow security from the larger group. So that's an elastic blockchain. 
It's the allocation and the sizing component that make it elastic. Yeah. Thanks for the clarification. I guess another question for folks who might be less familiar with side chains, why do you need them? Can't you build just directly on top of the Ethereum mainnet? Yeah, yeah, you, you can, but then you're sharing the throughput with the entire group. Right now... Right, so it's that scalability issue. That's the key reason why you would build on top of a sidechain? So there's, there's, three, there's three primary reasons. One would be uh, uh, block times. So on the mainnet, your block time is going to be 15, 20 seconds, 45 seconds. It depends so you can get to full finality. Now, on, a, on your own sidechain or your elastic sidechain, you get sub-second block times. And so if you have users that are using applications and you want the user experience to not be bad, if you run on scale, you can have a block time be less than a second, okay? And it, it only has to settle back to the mainnet when the money comes in or out, um, or however it's designed. The second piece is fees. So when once the user's on the sidechain, you as a developer and your company or your entity, your group, is buying that chain for a period of time, and then you're not paying per transaction. So you don't penalize your users for the more they use your product. There, You can get rid of the gas fees in terms of the, in, in, as far as the user experience. So if you have people using the chain all the time, well, there's no cost then to them. You're just basically buying the resource like we would buy Amazon, and you don't need to charge your users every time they do a call into your database you just charge them you know monthly fee or something or some other usage fee so that's that's reason two is is you can get rid of fees other than when money comes in and out and then reason three would be throughput um which isn't the big issue now for dabs because no one's at you know needs more than 20 transactions per second but it's how it will come soon and on the on your side chain on scale if you have a large chain you could do 2,000 transactions per second on a small chain, you're, you're going to be able to do um, you know, 20 per second on your own chain, which is a lot. I think it's 1.7 million throughout the course of a day for a small chain. So, so those are the three reasons. The, other, the fourth, I would say, is just usability. Like, I don't care if you know, the world's biggest gaming dApp uh, has you know, 100x growth. It doesn't make my service cost more. It doesn't slow the network down for me. And so that's what happens with shared blockchains. CryptoKitties was successful. And guess what? You may have had a B2B <coughs> decentralized application and your users all of a sudden have to pay 50% more and have 50% slower uh, call times because of some gaming debt that has nothing to do with you. Right. That's a really important point because it's not, it's not necessarily just if your dApp is successful and you get to that scale, actually, if another dApp is successful, right, like CryptoKitties example, they basically congest the entire network and then, you know, you have to pay much higher fees or your users have to pay much higher fees if they're using your product. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, exactly. Yeah. That's, yep. Exactly right. And are you guys focused just on Ethereum? Yeah, we are, we are a very we're hundred percent focused on supporting Ethereum developers. We feel that's where the biggest growth is happening, and it is uh, amongst the developer community. We also feel that just like in the '80s, how Microsoft won the developer platform war, they focused on making developers champions, and they uh, were hundred percent focused on, and they really invented business to developer marketing, B two D marketing, and 
And so scale, uh, I think we in the community, in the scale network, uh, and, and by the way, I am CEO of Scale Labs, Inc., but a, a you know, prominent supporter of the open network, the scale network, which is an open decentralized network. And we feel that uh, you know, we need to support developers and where the action is happening is on Ethereum. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a clear leader at this point. Do you see a world where you might support other smart contract platforms, you know, like Cosmos, like Polkadot, recently had on the podcast, the CEO of Hadera Hashgraph. Just curious how you're thinking about that. You know, probably probably not. Where, where you could think of scale supporting is scale, each scale chain, you could think of it as this really fast C++ Ethereum that's got souped up networking and consensus. Um, and what you get in that is you get complete interoperability with the Ethereum ecosystem. And so let's say I'm a, a developer that wants to use Libra in, my, in the Ethereum ecosystem. And I say, well, there's all these people that use Libra token as a currency, but I want my game or my decentralized, uh, my DeFi product or my, you know, my, my event uh, sign-up disruptor to be able to use Libra. Well, that's where Scale can help. Scale can basically help, eventually will support Libra and Bitcoin and other digital assets. So you can, you can freeze them and clone them into your scale chain and use the Ethereum eco, developer ecosystem to support other tokens for your end users. So you're still, we're, you know, the scale network still focused entirely on smart contract execution for Ethereum, but it will be able to support multiple currencies as part of that execution as opposed to multiple smart contract and developer ecosystem platforms. Got it. So basically other currencies on top of Ethereum, ELC20. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it makes sense. And again, it's something that comes up often in you know, discussions. It's one thing to have a better tech for you know, your layer one blockchain network. But I feel like the thing with Ethereum is it's so far ahead in terms of the ecosystem, right? You have so many different developers building on top of Ethereum that even if you develop a better network, purely from a technical perspective, let's say with better bandwidth or you know, higher throughput, the question is not really that. It's can you win over these developers and migrate them over to your network? Otherwise... It's just going to be very difficult, I think, to win. And at this point, like beating Ethereum, I think it can be done, but it's a very tall mountain to climb. Mm, exactly. It's just, you know, I, and so I feel bad for people that need to get developers to switch their entire uh, stack. Because the good thing about scale is if you build on scale in Ethereum, I mean, you've got Ganache and Truffle and Remix and Portis and Bitsky and Taurus and Portmatic and this entire stack of products that help you across you know, you've got the entire open zeppelin smart contract uh, uh, work that's been done you've got you know beginning to end there's there's people creating um, kind of foolproof easy to use smart uh, smart contract coding where normal developers can just basically plug and play solidity without knowing solidity and there's more people working on that than I think the entire other ecosystems combined, just one component of the Ethereum stack. So, <laughs> right. you know, and yeah, so that's why we're excited about supporting Ethereum is that, that community. 
Yeah, you know, I recently had on the podcast Jason Goldberg, the CEO of Pepo and OST. Uh-huh. He used to run a fab.com and competed with Amazon. That proved to be really challenging. And, you know, he kind of compared it in a way to competing with Amazon. Not that Ethereum is at that scale yet, but uh, I thought he just put it really nicely. It was like, you know, there's 80 to 90% of the folks that we know that are building on top of Ethereum. And then there are the second group, right, that want to be the next Ethereum. And he said, like, I wish them luck. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I feel like that's actually really accurate, right? Can it be done? Yes. Is it likely? Probably not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a tall order, but, you know, we'll, we'll see. I think um, Ethereum clearly has a head start. You get people like Pepo or groups like Pepo, Scale, and many, many others. You, you look at the graph building. Uh, what they're building for, for you know, graph queries on Ethereum you, across the across the whole stack. There's so many amazing uh, groups of people that are all w- really make up the Ethereum community. And so, if you think about the Ethereum community, it's almost like uh, it's it's made up of a. It's not like a central company. I think there's maybe 150ish people I've heard that are employed in some way, shape, or form by EF through different corporate structures, but there are probably, I don't know, I'd say 10,000 or 20,000 people working entirely on Ethereum in, you know, in some component of the ecosystem, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. And when you think about like open source code and composability, that just becomes really powerful because you can build on top of whatever others are building. Mm -hmm. And uh, it just becomes really compelling. Are you following closely ETH 2.0 and the developments there? Because obviously, I imagine that could have a huge impact on scale. Yeah, we we are. So we're we're excited about it. I, I, I'm excited for it to launch. You could think of scale, and we talked earlier about those value propositions. So all of those still hold true. Um, the The only one being the throughput issue, which I'd say is not as big of an issue yet. Um, maybe less of an issue if we have less less of a throughput bottleneck across the shards on ETH2, but you still ha- you still want your own backend so that you're not you know at the mercy of some other product success or failure for your pricing and your throughput. The other, you still want fast block times and you still want gasless transactions. So you uh, application specific backends are really I think basic building blocks where containerization and this is where you know, we're just applying Docker, and we're not using Kubernetes in this world um, from a uh, from a network architecture perspective. I mean, a lot of it's used um, to run nodes, but um, but you know, these are just kind of the way the way backend systems and infrastructure works. And Scale is just providing another building block that can be used in many many different ways by developers to bring their applications to market, and um, and it's a great fit for the ETH2 environment and stack. Yeah, that sounds really exciting. So what are the primary use cases that have emerged so far for folks who are using Scale? Yeah, so there's 35 dApps in the Scale Innovator program. And and so the network will be launching in Q2. And then, and what we've done is instead of just waiting for anyone to use it until we launch or until the network launches, Scale has created this uh, a program where people can get access, early access to chains, use and test. And and uh, the use cases are across the board, 
but the way they use the network is similar across every single every single uh, builder. And this, you know, is, is a similar way to the way Amazon launched. They were very broad, but they went after similar size companies that had similar technical use cases for how they used EC2. And so that's what we're doing. Um, you look at the way people use scale, they all benefit primarily from fast block time execution. They, they benefit from a UX perspective and usability perspective by having no gas fees. Um, in the interaction model for the end users. And those are the two main things, and they need to execute smart contracts quickly. So if I have a high volume of smart contracts, and so you see this in gaming, you see it in DeFi, you see it in B2B disruptors, you see it in you know, ad tech, you see it in, uh, in you know, all sorts of consumer internet Web3 products that where there's a middleman. Um, and that's the cool thing about I guess the position I'm in, I get to see across the board. And earlier we talked about disrupting the loan market and the savings account market for banks. Well, it's unbelievable how many entrepreneurs out there have seen a chink in the armor of the big middleman and said, hey, we can bootstrap a network effect in a community environment here and go take out this player. And whether they'll be the right ones or not, I'm not sure, but they've definitely found many uh, very clear business cases where smart contracts can come in and disrupt. And, and that's really where scale helps. And if you have one transaction a week per user at like 100,000 a transaction, well, just use the mainnet. But if you have 100,000 transactions at a dollar a week, you scale, right? And so, um, and so that's, a, that's really the model. Maybe it's not a dollar, it's a dollar and $10 and $100, but high throughput, typically lower uh, uh, monetary cost per transaction and the requirement to execute smart contracts quickly. Yeah, so it's just like the use cases kind of extend beyond, you know, pure financial payments. Yeah, and that's scale. That's where scale is very valuable. It's when I have Web3 type uh, execution I need to do of smart contracts as opposed to just pure uh, transaction volume. And I think... We'll see eventually state channels be very effective in, you know, pure transaction. Even though there's a definite chicken and egg effect in terms of how and the way they're implemented, but if you look at scale, uh, it, people that need to execute smart contracts, it's a very, very good fit. That's really interesting. So, Jack, how do you monetize? What's the business model for scale? Yeah, so scale is a decentralized network that has a a really a pure market monetization structure. And I say pure market because there's not a rent-seeking middleman or uh, you know monopolistic group in the center of the market. And so one side, you have people, individuals, groups, companies, whomever, who can run servers. And it's almost like Amazon EC2, but there's no Amazon. Guess what? You, anyone listening at home, you can plug a server into the wall, run the code, make sure you have the right uptime and internet bandwidth and latency, and guess what? You, you're running and you're working in the network and you're earning money because on the other side of the network, developers that run dApps pay to use the service. So what's happening is it's a pure market where no fees are being routed to another group, which makes incentives uh, kind of sometimes uh, uh, misaligned with the, the participants of the network when you are routing, routing fees. And so the way scale monetizes is 
it creates a win for people, for validators, for delegators who stake tokens in the network. They essentially provide security and they provide uh, the service to run the network. And then the other folks pay for it who use it to run dApps. Now, now you look at like, you know, people who, uh, who participated early in SAFs and core team. Well, their upside is limited in the sense that it's not like every year um, the builders take 30%. There's a small uh, component of tokens that were set aside pre-launch for the uh, foundation and, and early people who supported development by purchasing SAFs. So, so they obviously um, uh, uh, benefit when the network grows in, in security and utility and value. So that's the model. It's, and, you know, it's, it's a, I think, a, a beautiful business model. And, you know, it doesn't set you up to become an all-out monopoly making, in, you know, insane margins. But it, what it does is it creates a phenomenal community and helps bootstrap growth and create a real win across the board for all the uh, participants in the network. So just to be clear, the more demand there is, right, the more utility is generated from the protocol, you're saying basically everybody wins and you guys, I guess as scale labs, like you get a portion out of that? Yeah, so, so at the start. So at the onset, the team has a certain quantity of tokens and you know those, those vest over a three-year period that starts at the network launch. So really it ends up being over a five-year vest considering how long you know, the founding team has been working on this. Um, mm-hmm. And, and you know, then we win when the network uh, grows in demand and utility and security because the, the token, you know, when we were starting to work on it, obviously no one could pay for a scale chain. Uh, the token, the software didn't have value. When the software has value, when people are using it to, you know, to orchestrate the network and secure the network and get access to the network, then the token accrues in value as well. So that's the model. And the way we're launching with the proof of use model really helps ensure that the utility and security are put first above any sort of token appreciation, where people just launch a token on exchanges. And really, it's almost more of a financial instrument compared to a proof of use model where you're really launching the token as a as software and it's even not even right. You could, I think tokens, even a bad word, it should be called, you know, it's software that's functional, but also acts as a payment mechanism. Yeah. I mean, the thing is like with the whole token economics models that are out there right now, I feel it's just so early at this point, the ones that can prove you know, that their model works. I'm sure many will follow later. At this point, like I see a lot of projects that, you know, are building great tech, but it's still TBD whether that is going to be fully captured by the tokens that they're issuing. Is that something that you spend a lot of time thinking about? How did you approach that initially when you thought about structuring the financing for your company? Yeah, so I, you know, there are a few things come into play here. One um, is is what, how does volatility of the token impact uh, work in the network? And so, if you think about it, if I'm driving, let's say we have a decentralized Uber, and I'm a human, I'm driving around, I'm getting paid in a token. One day I get paid 
you know, enough to, you know, help me buy coffee because the token's depressed. The next day, I buy a cup of coffee, and then two weeks later, that cup of coffee is worth as much as like, you know, three months of work. That's really difficult to get humans to put their own time and effort into a non-stable currency model. Um, fees are a great way. If you look at the ba- the Brain Trust business model, uh, the way they use tokens are a good way to, when you're incorporating a token into a human work environment. Um, but when you look at the uh, you know people plugging machine into a wall and having a machine do work, i.e. a computer, we see this with Bitcoin all the time. People are very comfortable um, with volatility when the real work is just putting uh, plugging a machine into a wall. Now the way, and so I think the less human oriented on the work side or the supply side of a market, the uh, the task is, and the more uh, compute oriented it is, the more uh, the better early initial fit there will be with tokens because it's just going to take instability. Um, it is really harder on human effort and human time, and people aren't comfortable with that now. On the demand side, Scale uses a supply load curve similar to E2O model, where if the network's underloaded, the asset, uh, the service costs less. If it's overloaded, it costs more. It incentivizes more supply. It ends up pushing the price down. And so that mechanism uh, helps uh, helps impact volatility on the on the demand side. It helps impact it in a way that it it essentially mitigates the volatility component and. People buy a chain for six months or 12 months or 24 months, and they just lock the asset in. So there's not volatility other than the one second when they're buying, and the load curve helps uh, helps really suppress any sort of major issues that come with token volatility. So so I do think that token models are very well suited for certain types of uh, business structures, and um, scales and protocols in particular are very well suited for this type of uh, this type of economic structure. When you talk about that, do you have the proof of stake consensus algorithm model in mind, or is that something you would consider to be more human intensive because you have to stake your tokens? No, no, I think so. That's easy as well, right? You just stake your token. You're not necessarily so. Scale is proof of stake consensus. If I'm a delegator, I go lock my tokens into the network for three, six, or twelve months on scale, and I'm securing the network. I'm collateralizing the network. And similar, if I'm using Compound and I'm collateralizing the network with my money that people can take loans off of, um, you know, I'm a human, I'm, but I'm not necessarily having to, you know, sit there and do manual labor, uh, wait on tables, drive a vehicle, work in a factory, um, you know, write emails, do calls. You know, if I'm putting time in as a person, physical time, then I'm way less comfortable with volatility. Again, if I put money into a system, and I leave, uh, or I, you know, plug a server into the wall or light up a server on, on a cloud service like Amazon or, or DigitalOcean, then, hey, then, you know, I'm looking at this from a long-term play, and I'm not necessarily uh, so concerned if one day, you know, my energy costs uh, or my server costs in a co-location center, you know, were up or down. I'm kind of looking at a long-term horizon. Does that make sense? Yeah. And what's your vision for scale? You talked earlier about your plans to launch in Q2. Where do you go from here? Like what's next on your roadmap? Yeah, so so our big vision, um, one, we believe that we're going to see many, many incredibly successful uh, 
business models and 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 DApps running in in the world. I think centralized businesses will have components where they're running decentralized structures or blockchains or token oriented uh, components of their business. Uh, decentralized businesses will become very successful. We're going to see it across the board, and we're going to see a lot of hybrid models. And you know what that means is we're going to need a lot of smart contracts. And so scale. Uh, the grand vision of scale is that 99% of the world's smart contracts run on scale through the Ethereum ecosystem and also storage. And so scale, scale really is teeing itself up and the scale community is teeing itself up to be, you know, what Amazon AWS is to a centralized world to Web2. Scale can be a decentralized cloud in, com- in combination with Ethereum to be the AWS of Web3. That's the big grand vision. Now, we we obviously have to start small. We're very focused on you know the early developers in the Ethereum world and making all the Ethereum developers successful. That launch will be in Q2 through the Consensus Activate program, and we're going to see uh, you know there's 35 DApps already on board, but the goal is to uh, have a hundred um, really phenomenal use cases up and running uh, before long, and and 20 of those hopefully. We see many, uh, many applications with over a million daily active users. So we're doing our part. Other people are across the stack as well and other, uh, other groups. And, and we're excited to see, you know, see this stuff become a reality. We've all been waiting for a long time, right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's mind-blowing, like, how many different use cases can be applicable, even though, again, like, I think it's really early at this point and, you know, we still see the numbers are pretty low across the board in terms of usage. Yeah. You know, and these, these things are just tough to use right now. I mean, I personally try to use them as much as I can. And sometimes I'm like, you know what? I don't want to get my ledger wallet. I don't want to, you know, it's just, it's just going to get easier and we're going to see a lot of growth. And, and man, it's, you know, the other thing, like the horizon for these things, I mean, the typical SaaS company that's, that's funded with Series A has a seven-year horizon before a liquidity event. And that's average. So that means there's some that are a lot longer, some are shorter. And so just, you know, Ethereum's not even seven years old. So uh, we're... Yeah. Then you think about all the businesses that, you know, I don't think the right infrastructure is going to be there until this year, until we actually can create a user experience that even people in the space will use every day, not even talking about our parents or grandparents, cousins who aren't, don't know anything about crypto. Right. I mean, right now, to your point, like downloading MetaMask and stuff like that and then using, I mean, it's just like such a pain. There's so much friction right now in using DeFi and so forth. Yeah. Once that improves, I think it can have dramatic impact on usage. Yeah. Yeah. And it's this, it's this delicate dance where, User experience and security usually are uh, diametrically opposed. And the more secure something is, the more secure, uh, the harder it is to use typically. And, you know, even look at a bank, like if I go keep my money behind a 10,000 pound safe door, well, it's very secure, but if I want access to it, it's very difficult. (laughs) My money may be less secure in my wallet, but I can give you cash at any coffee shop or, you know, tap my cell phone and, and, you know, I give up security, but I get I get utility, and we've got to do the same thing in crypto. Yeah, absolutely right. Again, like that's why I think like in crypto, it also takes a bit more time for the whole ecosystem to mature. We're talking about money, right? We're talking about financial services. 
this isn't just another app where you know you can order yeah. something <laughs> it makes it much more complicated so kind of want to shift gears a bit jack we talked earlier before the recording about the coronavirus it's causing so much chaos pretty much everywhere at this point what's the status in uh, san francisco how does that impact your uh, day-to-day work environment yeah you know it's really it's almost surreal to think about uh you know it's like the first act of a act of a zombie film and you know we're in the first (laughs) first act and like we're about ready to go into the you know the second act where we like hit this trough and just who knows how deep this trough's going to be (laughs) as the story (laughs) right Um, and you know, I think everyone's really waiting and wondering, like, is this going to blow over in a week or two weeks? And I think most people have accepted that the economic impact and the impact on schools and work life is going to be impacted definitely for the next quarter. And there'll obviously be, obviously be issues on the on the broader uh, economy for the rest of the year. But who knows how bad this is going to be? So what we're doing, it's impacted us. And San Francisco's, uh, you know, really really concerned right now and we've shut our office or we've 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 just made it so hey if you don't want to go to the office please work from home especially if you have people in Hmm. age demographics that could that in your family that you're around that you live with that could be severely impacted so you know most people 90 percent of people aren't going to the office at at and the same thing with our Ukraine office today. We did, wow, ninety percent. Yeah, and that's in um, some really big companies whom, uh, for some reason, they're keeping it confidential, and the employees are telling everybody. So maintain confidentiality. But some of the largest employers in San Francisco <clears throat> are shutting their offices down right now, shutting access down. So we're we're seeing people being forced to work remotely, and and I'd be happy to tell you what's what the Scale Core team is doing. The Scale Labs Inc. core team to uh, to kind of you know not let this impact us, but it's uh... so. How do you handle that as the CEO of the company? How do you because that must change the work dynamics quite a bit when suddenly pretty much like the entire office is not really physically in the office. Yeah. We actually just had an all hands meeting right before this. So I'd, I'd be happy to just transparently share what we talked about. So. One, you know, the scale network is a decentralized open network like Ethereum. Um, but just like Ethereum, there's uh, the foundation, about 150 people on core team that work full time supporting it. Scale Labs Inc. Is, is just one entity, right, that is a supporter. But we're the core team building. And it's, uh, you know, but this core team supporting this open network, we have to act like a company. And, and so what we're saying is, hey, let's. How big is that team, Jack? They're 30 people. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And, and split across Ukraine, uh, Kharkiv, Ukraine, and San Francisco. And so what I told the team was, hey, number one, you know, let's stay healthy. Let's, uh, you know, focus on health of ourselves and our families first before business. But then two, you know, let's be, let's be productive. When we're working from home, you be, be productive. Uh, what separates great teams from average teams are teams that can can get through friction and turmoil and be focused and flexible. And so the, I think the companies and the teams, and especially those building technology, the successful ones over the next six months are ones that stay focused. They don't let they, they don't let these things disrupt their plans and their building. And you know, 
when you're if you're at home, you're at Starbucks or wherever, if you're on the office, you can still get your job done. You have internet, you've got a computer, um, and uh, you've just got to keep pushing through. And and so you know, in light of first, hey, let's be let's take care of our health. But second, you know, let's not let's not it's not halftime. The game's still going. Let's 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 go play ball. Yeah, it has an impact on people's mindset, right? Like when once people are concerned about their health or the family's health, it's really challenging yeah. um, to keep them focused on the task at hand. It, it, and especially, right, like we were just talking about the Stanford just shut school down and, and countries, uh, Ukraine now has just banned all social gatherings. The state of Washington banned any gathering of more than 250 people. Um, so this is real stuff. And so it's hard to like read about like these life changing things and, and then, then go back to doing kind of a mundane task in front of your computer. But you just, uh, again, I think, you know, the really successful teams over the next six months or a year are going to be one teams that have good funding, <laughs> um, that can make it through any funding trough and two teams that are focused. And, you know, I think we're fortunate, uh, at the scale core team to, to fit those, in within those categories, the of not you know not needing additional funding over the next few years to operate, and I think having a set of individuals that and a team that can focus, but it's not easy. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a very valid concern, right? Teams that did plan to fundraise soon and that are running out of cash, I still think you can do that, but it's probably more difficult at this environment to fundraise. Yeah. Especially for the next month, I think there's just a shell shocking that happened. Yeah. You know, my first company we started, the first company I founded, we, it was June of 2008, when, and we got the thing going and <clears throat> got really close to raising around a capital. And then the market just completely tanked and the Sequoia email went out and everyone was just like, whoa. And let me tell you, it was impossible to raise funds for about six months. Um, we lived off of ramen noodles. And, uh, you know, and, and survived and built a world-class uh, major company and eventually raised over $100 million in capital. But there were six months of survival, and that's what it took. And I think the good companies uh, really can grow through, through downturns because they have a strong value prop and they're committed. And I think we're going to see that happen again. It is different, but in a way, it kind of reminds me of, you know, the market shock that happened in the crypto space end of 2017, kind of early 2018, right? When the ICO market crashed mm -hmm. and suddenly it became much more difficult to raise funds, certainly from, you know, not professional investors, more from retail investors and so forth. And you could really quickly see the teams who were heads down, executing, building stuff, take Binance, for example, as opposed to other teams that just really didn't do much and kind of fast forward two years from that period are now running out of cash and are considering closing or maybe even already shut down their business. It's really the great teams that are just executing ruthlessly, regardless of the market conditions that, you know, set themselves apart from the rest. Yeah. Yeah, that is that is so so true. And you know, we were we raised our capital, and uh, the majority of it, or the first major round, was in in July of 2018. And I'll tell you, it was hard. There was a much higher filter than 
and the valuations were maybe a tenth of what they were of people who raised a year or uh, earlier or six months earlier. But we ended up getting really lucky because of that, because it helped us really uh, kind of sharpen the sword or the axe in terms of what this value prop was. And it also helped us raise at a very reasonable valuation that's lasted through the downturn. And we said, hey, let's let's create a win for people um, as opposed to raising it like a billion dollar valuation and then or higher that it just you only have one place to go with a pre-launch product and that's down. So, you know, I think it was hard at the time, but in the long run, we were lucky. And, you know, maybe the same thing is going to hold true for people that are are pushing through and getting to that first phase right now as well. That's the other thing, right? When I talk with entrepreneurs, like there's a delicate balance there, right? When you think about valuations, yes, as an entrepreneur, you probably want to get high valuation and kind of minimize your dilution. But on the other hand, like if the valuation is too high or you raise too much money, it just puts so much pressure on the entrepreneurs to deliver, sometimes unrealistic pressure, right? Because by the time you fundraise again, you got to justify a much higher valuation. And sometimes it just puts you in a difficult spot. So it's about finding that balance. Certainly, you know, again, end of 2017, early 2018, valuations were just out of whack in the crypto space at that point. Yeah, they were. And you know, the same thing happened with consumer internet too back in, I think, like 2015, 2016. And I, I, had, a, I had a few friends, many friends that <clears throat> were fortunate to raise huge valuations, like 700 million valuation. And, you know, they at Series B. And it was, it was ridiculous. And they, what happened, sadly, a lot of them took a poison pill. And you do that. And then your only next step after is, is acquisition by only maybe two or three players that could acquire you at that yeah. rate that the last round would not veto or you have a horrible down round and you know and so you just same thing happened with crypto yeah exactly so speaking of fundraising and valuations one thing i always ask founders coming on the show is about the fundraising process yeah and i know you guys have raised about 17 million uh, so far, right? Yep. And was wondering if you have, there's a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs listening to the podcast. And I was wondering, Jack, if you can share some best practices or tips about the fundraising process that you found helpful when you were at that stage. Yeah. Um, so I've got a, f- a few pieces of advice. So one would be in the crypto space, if you hold yourself to an equal or higher standard to an entrepreneur building in SaaS or consumer internet or other other proven mature categories. And that means hold yourself to the same standard and the amount of research you do, the amount of uh, effort you're putting into your building your deck, into you know understanding your TAM, understanding uh, the customer needs and requirements and understanding competitive landscape and and you know all of these things that really, when it comes down to, are are really understanding and being able to explain your product market fit and financial perspective to an investor. You know, you will be in the top one percent in the crypto space. There's a lot of incredibly smart people in crypto that are fundraising, that are incredibly smart, but not necessarily um, uh, that mature when it comes to structuring how you go about the business side. And they may be world-class in a certain category of technology, but not necessarily 
um, applying best practices when it comes to fundraising. So, so one, I would say, hold yourself to the same bar, do the research, do the analysis, read about how to put a deck together. And, you know, and the main thing is like, get out there and talk to customers. Your job as an entrepreneur is to not convince someone to invest, but to help do the research for them so they know the risk profile. So you can say, hey, here's what we're doing. Here's how we're doing it. Here's where we're strong. Here's where we're weak. Here's where the risks are. But here's where the dramatic upside is if we're successful, if we can get over these challenges. So, so if you go to an investor and they say, well, what about this? What about, what about this? And you're not able to say, well, here's how we thought through this. And also, if you haven't even positioned that before they're digging into these key points, you've really done a poor job of helping them make an investment decision. So, um, so that's, that's just some quick advice. Uh, happy to, you know, if you dig in more, if you'd like, but those are two critical things. Yeah, these are really great points. And I think on that last one, you know, professional investors can really quickly, like the good ones can really quickly see through that. You know, when you see it with an entrepreneur and you start digging into the product and the go-to-market plans and so forth, it's fairly easy to tell whether they've done their research and have talked with, you know, enough potential users. It doesn't even have to be users, right? It could be even potential users. It's pretty easy to tell how thoughtful they are about it and whether they've done their homework or not. And that is definitely something that's really important for investors to see. You want to make sure that the entrepreneurs are well aware of both the opportunity, but also the challenges that they might face in executing on their plan. And if it's not a good plan, right, you want to make sure that they figure that out as soon as possible. And the only way really to do that is by talking to as many potential users or customers as possible in a short period of time. So that's a really good point. Anything else you want to add? Yeah, you know, the other, you know, you you helped me think of another thing with that comment is one of the things with crypto and blockchain entrepreneurs is we are OSS, all of us, right? We're open source software community. And there's there's almost this uh, feeling that that it, you know, that there's no mutual exclusiveness between having a good business model and having like a capitalistic attitude towards your business and being like a real pure OSS person or OSS community member. So the reality is, is they're not mutually exclusive. You can create great business wins for your community and the constituents that are involved with the, you know, your open source software initiative and, you know, create a great open source software developer community. And so you see this happen. Uh, there's many incredible examples in, in the enterprise OSS world. And I'd say study those. I mean, look at look at what HashiCorp and other other groups have been able to do, and you're just going to see uh, there's just a, a lot of areas where where you where you don't necessarily need to be like a nihilist and <laughs> against making money because when you go talk to an investor, you're going to have trouble getting funded. Now, um, some people like to play up the street cred component of we don't have a business model; we're just building, and that's great. <laughs> but you don't you can be both. <laughs> Okay. Oh, you should be both, right? You should, exactly. But you wouldn't believe how many people aren't, and they are proud of the fact. That oh, I would. I, I see it every day. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, those are the good. The good ones are the ones people that are proud of the fact they have no business model. The sad situations are many people just don't know they don't have a business model. <laughs> uh, right. 
but but you know you can you can that's a solvable problem it just takes doing the right homework doing the right research and um you know it's something that can be avoided and you can you can clearly differentiate yourself from the competition um and not lose open source cred right now that's a really good point i mean the way i tend to think about it is you know all of us in the space right in the crypto space we're really excited about decentralization and the benefits of blockchain technology having said that that doesn't mean that you have to you know reinvent the wheel from a business perspective and i think there's actually a lot that entrepreneurs can learn from the great internet businesses that have been built over the past, you know, 20, 30 years, right? Like there's a lot to learn from, you know, the Googles, the Microsoft, the, the Facebooks, the many great businesses that have been built during that time. And many of actually the business strategies and the go-to-market approaches that these companies applied can actually also be applied to crypto with the tweaks necessary for a an open source decentralized product. But I actually get, from an investor's perspective, I get concerned when I see a team that's trying to reinvent the wheel across the board, you know, whether it's their go-to-market, their business strategy, their product, and so forth. Building a startup is difficult to begin with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's all tough. So so don't don't handicap yourself un, you know, you know, when you don't need to. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So last question before we wrap up, Jack. Spent a lot of time talking about Ethereum and smart contracts. Curious, what's your take on Bitcoin? Oh, I, I'm a huge, huge fan of Bitcoin. And, you know, I, I've never sold any Bitcoin that I've, and I've been in the, you know, in the game for a long time. I'm just, I'm just uh, a long-term uh, community participant and believer. And I, I see Bitcoin as an Ethereum. It's almost like people like they try to compare Bitcoin to all these other assets. And I'm like, you know, I think it's a short sighted perspective. Like, are we going to compare the value of Facebook compared to Oracle, you know, database or something? Or, you know, Salesforce.com compared to uh, VMware? Like, come on, like there's space for different value props across uh, an ecosystem and they're not, they don't, one success doesn't subtract from the other. They actually support each other, um, directly or indirectly. And I think Bitcoin and Ethereum and, and all of the dApps and different protocols actually are a part of a broader ecosystem. That's still a very small one. And because it's small, people like to compare them against each other as if success of one takes away from the other. And I think it's short-sighted. So I'm, I think Bitcoin is going to be uh, a phenomenal uh, piece of our lives. Uh, and, you know, I, you know, one good one, you know, there's not many good things about the coronavirus. One thing is that maybe it's one of the last opportunities to buy Bitcoin again at under 10,000 uh, USD pegs. So, uh, <laughs> so that's my thoughts. Yeah, totally agree about Bitcoin and Ethereum not necessarily competing with each other. I mean, the use cases are actually quite different. Yeah, I never get like either the Bitcoin maximalist or the Ethereum maximalist. There's room for both of them. There are different use cases. Probably there's room for a few more, actually. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I completely agree with that. By the way, on Corona and Bitcoin, one thing I hear critics of Bitcoin saying now is, you know, you told us this is a hedge against 
the economy, right? And if there's a big crisis happening, then Bitcoin is like, you know, that safe haven that we should all have. And actually, Bitcoin, to your point, has dropped as well in terms of at least the price so far during that coronavirus. I mean, is that something that shakes your belief a bit in, in Bitcoin as, you know, a store of value? Or like, how are you thinking about that? You know, I think, I think it would really... <laughs> so store of value, obviously, is the clear winning use case. I mean, it's a very slow consensus model. Um, it's very secure. Store of value is a very, you know, like let's let's call a spade a spade. This is the world's best store of value, and it's still a fraction of other stores of values like gold. So, um, and you know, I think I just I've never really bought the the pure hedge model. Now, if there was an issue where we had bank volatility, then yeah, and that caused economic issues. Well, then Bitcoin's going to go up in value, and it's a hedge against you know fiat and and traditional currencies. But let's be honest, the people that are holding and trading and and may need short-term money or may need to, you know, have a, you know, buy low, sell high strategy, it's going to follow other, you know, broader macroeconomic trends. And I think it's a bit of a fallacy, but um, hey, uh, one of Bitcoin's strengths is that the, it has a world of people that promote for it. And unfortunately, the product marketing hasn't gone through like a super stringent filter. So I think that's Maybe one, you know, partial fallacy, uh, but it's just a partial fallacy. Yeah, and it's also like still early days, right? It's only been in existence, what, like 11 years? Yeah. Certainly much less than that on a more meaningful scale. So, yeah, it's it's probably a bit early to judge at this point. But hey, any, any impact will be short term. Yeah, I mean, the real believers are... You know, <laughs> like they're not worried about a 20% drop, right? Yeah, like, oh, just 20%. Like, that can happen in a day with Bitcoin, right? Either, either direction, right? can also gain 20% probably. So <laughs> exactly. It's, it's, it's actually kind of funny to see all these analysts, right? You see equity analysts on Wall Street and they're like, you know, they don't know how to end it, like that 5% drop that happened recently. And then you see like the Bitcoin traders and they're like, you know, it's Monday. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Jack, thanks so much for coming on the show. Fascinating discussion and really appreciate you being so candid and sharing such great insights. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Hey, the pleasure has been all mine. Really, really enjoyed it. And I look forward to, uh, to staying in touch and and uh, yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode of The Blockchain VC and want to help bring more awareness to the space, I'd really appreciate it if you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. This only takes a few seconds and helps get the word out. <laughs>